Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone's smiling faces, uh, as always. And this morning, we've come all the way to Hebrews 3. So last week, we took out the first two chapters of Hebrews, and we saw the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, uh, addressing these Jewish Christians and telling them how Jesus was better than the angels. And he spent two chapters uh, going over that with them. And now we come to chapter three, and he's going to tell them how Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter four, Jesus is better than Joshua. And we will go through why he says that, and we will talk about all of these things in greater detail. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterwards. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, back in verse 1, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers of the heavenly calling. We are all partakers of this heavenly calling if we are born again. If we are born into the family of God as a child of God and a joint heir of Christ, we are partakers of the heavenly calling. And this is who he's talking to. Remember, these are Jewish Christians. Uh, that he's writing to partakers of the heavenly calling consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Consider. This means to consider attentively or to fix one's eyes or mind upon. So fix your eyes, fix your mind upon the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And we are going to do just that this morning. You see, apostle means sent one. Moses was called of God out of the world. Jesus was sent by God to the world. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was called by God from the world, which we see um, in typology, Egypt is a type of the world. Okay, so Moses is called out of Egypt to his people with Israel. Christ was sent by God to the world. And in this way, Christ is superior to Moses. Moses brought the law, but Christ brings grace. John 1, 16 through 17 reads, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, 
but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace is better than the law. The gospel Christ brings is better than the gospel Moses brought. Moses brought the law to the Israelites and Christ brought grace. Possibly the most obvious of all of these similarities uh, between Moses and Jesus is that Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land, or not into, but to the promised land. Uh, Moses was not able to bring them into that land because he had sinned. Uh, And so God brought up Joshua and Joshua finished Uh, that promise of God to bring the Israelites into the land. But Moses brought all of the Israelites out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and to the promised land. Okay, this is just like Jesus is able to bring us out of the world and into this life of rest with him. And we'll talk more about the rest we find in Christ. See, Moses was just a type of Jesus. Moses was the shadow, and Jesus was the substance of the things to come. Moses foreshadowed Jesus. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all of his house. So we see the author, I believe, is Paul. He doesn't bash Moses. He actually says Moses was faithful. He he did well. Uh, he was a good man, and he was faithful in all of his house. But Christ was also faithful, and Christ was faithful to him who appointed him. We know that was the Father. The Father appointed Jesus to come to the world and die for our sins. It is important to note that the writer isn't bashing Moses here. And I believe he did this because he was writing to the Jews. And he knew that writing to the Jews, you know, Moses was an important figure in their religion. So if you bash Moses and trying to get the Jews' attention, they're not going to listen to you, right? Because Moses was who who God gave the law to, to give to Israel. He was a prophet and a messenger from God, Um, and he deserves respect. So Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, speaking of Jesus, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. I think this is kind of obvious, and we can all get on board with this. If we drive by a really nice house, We don't roll down the window, stick our head out the door and say, hey, house, looking really good today. It's just not what we do. We see this nice house and we think, man, the guy that built that must have been very skilled. must have been a great architect. And it's the same way here. We don't glorify the house. We glorify the builder of the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So God gets the glory here. Um, And Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, 
for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So Moses brought the law, which would serve as a testimony or a witness of Jesus. When we read through the Old Testament, we see Jesus on every single page. Um, It is wrought with foreshadowing, typologies, uh, prophecies of Jesus. That was what Moses did. He simply brought to Israel the eventual realization of Jesus. So Jesus is the substance. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was a servant in the house of God. But Christ as a son over his own house. Christ was more than a servant. He came to serve, yes. But he was a son over his own house. The son is who inherits the house. Right? So we see this idea that, yes, Moses is great, and he did well. But he was a servant in Christ's house. Christ is the master, and Christ will eventually inherit all that his father has. He is committed to Jesus to judge all. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, talking about the house of Christ, which is the church, again, this is comprised of born-again believers into the house of God. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, don't lose sight of Jesus. Paul wrote to the Galatians, why are you so quick to fall away from this great thing that you've discovered in Jesus? You're so quick to go back to your flesh. Why? You've found what you needed. Now stick with it. You were born by Jesus, so live by Jesus. Don't fall away, but hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Verse 7. Therefore, in light of everything he's just said, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The emphasis in verse 7 and really through all of chapter 4 is today. There's an urgency in this message uh, that the author is communicating. He's going to say today several times. Today, if you will hear his voice. 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness. I want to remind you of this little story here. Uh, This is an allusion back to when Israel was brought to the promised land. The day of trial in the wilderness. They had just come out of wandering in the wilderness. They were brought to the promised land by Moses. And they sent out several spies into the land. They brought back these giant clusters of grapes. It was a land, as they said, flowing with milk and honey, which is Israel talk for this land was fertile. It was good land. So the spies came back and reported to the Israelites, guys, this is really good land, but we've got a little problem. There are giants in this land. And I don't think we can take them. All but two spies brought back that that report. There were giants. I don't think we can do it. The two spies that differed in their report were Joshua and Caleb. Joshua would then eventually lead the Israelites back to that land to conquer it. Joshua and Caleb came back saying, yes, these guys are scary. But... The Lord is on our side. And these people in our land are defenseless against our God. We can take them. And God has promised this to us. So let's do it. But only two guys. How sad is that? That was the day of trial in the wilderness. When the Israelites, because of unbelief, did not enter into Canaan, into the land of rest. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. I want to remind you, the Israelites had just witnessed a miracle every day for 40 years leading up to that point. I will sometimes get into this mode of thinking, and I know that others do too, but sometimes I'll think, man, if I could just see God working somehow, if I could just witness a miracle, if I could witness something supernatural, man, I would believe even more, and I would give more of myself to God. I don't think that's the case. The Israelites witnessed a miracle for 40 years every day, And they still did not believe enough to take hold of the land of rest, to step into the promise that God had made them. So why would we be any different? If I see one miracle, is that really going to just lock me in for life? No, not necessarily. So let's try to steer clear of that way of thinking. You know, the Israelites... When they were in Egypt, they saw the plagues. They saw all of Egypt's firstborn dead. They saw every other plague that God brought onto the Egyptians. They walked through the Red Sea. They walked through it. There was water piled up on each side of them. And they remained dry. They came into the wilderness and they were hungry. You know, as all of us would be, I certainly would be. 
God provided for them daily food from heaven, the manna. Out of thin air, food for two million people. You eat, you're satisfied, well, now you're thirsty. When they got thirsty, God provided water for them. Out of this rock that followed them in the wilderness, water flowed. Miraculous provisions, but yet unbelief. And saw my works 40 years. For 40 years, they witnessed God's works. And because of that, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that was the punishment for unbelief. They did not enter his rest. God sent them around again in the wilderness. And that whole generation perished. None of that generation came into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, the land of rest, except for Joshua and Caleb, the ones that believed. They entered in to that rest. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. If we look at this verse in its historical context, the author is writing to these Jewish Christians. He's warning them, don't be like your forefathers. Don't witness these things and then throw them out the window and not believe. He says, beware, take caution, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Not an evil heart of debauchery, not an evil heart of lust, not an evil heart of greed, an evil heart of unbelief. That is the sin, unbelief. Because without belief, without faith, which we will see, you cannot enter into a life of rest. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He encourages them to encourage one another, to hold fast the confession of Jesus Christ. And this is how these new Christians enter the rest. And this rest, um, I want to point this out because sometimes it's misunderstood. We see this uh, picture of rest and this picture of Canaan, the land of rest. Okay, It's a typology. And some will tell you that Canaan is a picture of heaven. And that is not true. That's not accurate. Um, I am thankful and I am looking forward to heaven, 
because there are no giants there. In Canaan, they were brought into the land, but they still had to conquer the land. They had to fight the giants. Read about it in Joshua. They had to go through the land and conquer each city. There are not giants in heaven, thankfully. But there are giants here on earth. And there are giants still when we walk with Christ. In fact, there are giants that we may see before we start our walk with Christ. If you're an unbeliever, you see these giants and they deter you from stepping in by faith to a life with Christ. You see them there ahead. You see, man, there are some things that I still like to dabble with in the world. And I just, I'm not ready to give those up to follow Christ. That's a giant. You see that. You don't think that you can conquer it with Christ. Just like the Israelites. See, we're, we're no different. Rather than being a picture of heaven, Canaan is a picture of our life with Christ, our walk with Christ here on earth. And there will be giants. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, it was not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? You know, I think it's funny that the word is corpses. Because that's what this is. It's a corpse. That's all it is. And... We can't really see each other as we actually are. You are not your hardware. You are your software. In other words, your hardware can pass away, but software is just information. It doesn't go with the hardware. Your software lives on. Your spirit, your soul, It's connected to your hardware right now, your corpse. But the software, your soul, will live on. And how much time do you spend on your corpse? I like to work out. I like to stay in decent physical condition. I spend quite a bit of time working on my corpse. Fixing my hair in the morning. I don't take that long, but you might. I just give it a couple brushes. How much time do we spend on these corpses? Do we spend that much time for our software? Do we spend that much time in fellowship with God? An interesting thought. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses, their little floppy disks, fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see 
that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. They just couldn't believe after all those years. In chapter 4, in this chapter, we will see rest used in a few different senses. One, you have the Sabbath rest of God, the rest that he took on the seventh day after ceasing from his works. That's from Genesis 2.2. You've got Canaan, which is the rest for Israel after wandering for 40 years in the desert. That's in Hebrews 11.3, which we just looked at, and all of the verses that are attached to that, that idea. Number three, rest as the believer's present salvation rest in Christ. We'll see this in Hebrews 4, verses 3 and 10. And you have the future eternal rest in heaven. Personally, my favorite of all of them. We'll see that in Hebrews 4, 9. So, and we'll make it clear when we're going through this, what kind of rest we are talking about. But again, remember, Canaan is not a picture of heaven, but a picture of a life with Christ. Chapter 4, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. There can be two people sitting next to each other in church. One can be asleep. They're not hearing anything. One can be awake and attentive, and they are soaking it all in. That's in the physical. But this same concept occurs in the spiritual. One can be spiritually awake and attentive. That one is hearing the Holy Spirit speak through the text. The Holy Spirit is speaking directly to their hearts, applying the things, teaching the things in God's word. The other can be spiritually asleep, and they are not getting anything, fighting to keep their eyes open spiritually. They're not picking up anything. The person who's awake is gathering something, and the person who is asleep isn't hearing a thing. Faith must be mixed with the hearing to be effectual. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. These are the ones that are asleep, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Faith must be mixed with hearing. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He says, we who have believed do enter that rest. This is the rest of a believer in the salvation of Christ. We can cease from our works, from our striving to measure up to the world's standards, 
trying to even measure up to God's standards, we can stop all of that and simply rest in the fact that we are held by Christ. We are his. That is this rest that we enter into. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the rest in Christ is pointing back to God's rest on the seventh day after ceasing from his creative works in creating the universe. This rest is a rest of satisfaction and completion, not of exhaustion. God was not tired after he made the world. He is infinite and he's all-powerful. He didn't get rest because he was tired. He rested because he completed something and he was satisfied with that. That is the example that he's setting a rest of satisfaction and completion in Christ. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If the rest of God which he spoke of, was Canaan, and that was the only rest that there was, then why did God also speak of rest in him after the Israelites entered into Canaan? This is the argument that the writer is making here. There must be another rest that the people can enter into after the promised land. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now look, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. So, the rest we find in Christ on this earth is not the final rest. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, is referring to heavenly rest. That rest of eternity with Christ, with our Creator. When all tears are wiped away from our eyes, and everything is made right. That is the ultimate rest that we have in Christ. Yes, we get to rest from our works here on earth. We don't have to strive to be good enough. In context, these Jewish Christians don't have to strive to keep the law any longer. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Joshua. Because Joshua, having brought them into the promised land, could not give them a final rest. 
like Jesus can. It's interesting, and you can do with this information what you will. Uh, Joshua is the Greek name for Jesus. Yeshua. Joshua. It's interesting that those two names line up in Scripture. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. How glorious it is. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that same rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let us therefore be diligent. This word diligent um, in your King James translation uh, may be translated as labor. Let us labor for. Now this confuses us. So we just talked about rest. Now we're talking about laboring for this rest. Um, The word really, uh, the sense of it, means to give diligence, to endeavor, to press on towards, all of these things. Uh, But we do have to give conscious effort to abiding in Christ. Though we come into a life with Christ, sometimes we're distracted. Sometimes it does take a little conscious effort for us to get back on track, to again lay at the feet of the cross, to put all of our burdens onto him, to not feel guilty about a sin that may have crept in. It takes a little laboring. It takes some diligence to remain in this rest. Verse 10, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. He's telling these Jewish Christians, guys, if you have entered into the rest of Christ, it is a rest in which you can cease from your works. You don't need to be going back to the temple every day and sacrificing. The ultimate sacrifice has already been made in Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to the priest. The ultimate high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you right now. The ultimate thing of the law is making intercession on your behalf. The feasts were a shadow of things to come. The substance of that is Christ. Everything that the feast represented is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the law. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent, take heed to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, that is, unbelief. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Those are powerful words. And those have a lot of implications. The word of God is living and powerful. It's effectacious. That word powerful is the the root of that is where we get our word energy. The word of God is energized. It is living and it's powerful. You can take your Bible to an empty room, nobody else around, open it up, sit down, and be alone with God. And the text will speak to you, it will comfort you, and it will convict you. It's living, and it's powerful. The text will pierce you. It is sharper. That word sharper means more cutting than any two-edged sword. The Romans had a two-edged sword, more like a dagger. It was a small blade that they used in combat. When they would get into hand-to-hand combat, they could pull this little dagger and slip it beneath their opponent's ribs. And that was meant to be the kill blow in combat. This is an allusion to that little dagger. Sharpened on both sides, straight for piercing, not for slashing. The word of God behaves in like manner. It's double-edged. One edge for convicting and converting some. And the other edge for condemning and destroying the unbelieving at the end. In Revelation 19.15, John has a vision of Christ with a sword coming from his mouth to smite the nations. The same word which is saving to the faithful, to you and me if we accept Christ as our Savior, is destroying to the disobedient, to those who do not accept this gift. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This means that this sword is so sharp and so much more cutting that it doesn't just cut physical matter. It can cut things that are simply spiritual. It divides between the soul and the spirit. I don't know what the divide between soul and spirit is. I can't do that. The word of God is able to do this. And of joints and marrow. Marrow is inside a bone. You have to get past the outside of the bone to get to the marrow. Dividing of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It discerns our thoughts and our actions. It knows us better than we know ourselves. Have you been reading the Bible or listening to a message and it seems like it's just tailored for you? It's living and it's powerful. And it's able to discern our own thoughts and our own intentions when we're not even able to do that ourselves. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This word naked means laid bare, without covering. All things are laid bare before him. And we must give account. It's silly to try to hide something from God. It is. And we see it in the story of Jonah. He tries to hide from God and what God wants for his life. How did that end up for him? Not very well. In the end, it was all right. He spent some stinky days and nights, though, um, running from God. All is laid bare. All of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our intentions are laid bare before him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, that double negative is very powerful. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He very much can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's important, yet without sin. We're tempted in many ways. I sin sometimes. I do my best not to. But sometimes I fall. Jesus was tempted in every way that I am, in every way that you are, yet remained without sin. And this is why he can come to our aid. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we'll talk more about Jesus as the ultimate high priest next week when we break into chapter 5. but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's because of his sacrifice that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And I love that, the throne of grace. Almighty, all-powerful God, sitting on the throne, And yet, to us, it is a throne of grace. That is what he has extended to us. As believers, he does not extend justice to us. Yes, he is just in all things. But we are justified by Christ. Christ has covered what was meant for us. Christ experienced a spiritual death a separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is something that we don't have to experience as Christians because he experienced it for us. We can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our help in time of need that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Peter, in wrapping up his second epistle, said, let us grow 
in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us grow in grace. Grace is freeing. Grace gives us rest. That is what we rest in. We rest in the grace. Now, this morning, we saw a lot of today. Today, if you hear his voice. Not tomorrow, not next week. There was an urgency to this message. Today, if you hear his voice, why is it so important that we listen to that gentle call of the Holy Spirit today? Why can't I do it tomorrow? Well, you might be able to do it tomorrow. You might not have the opportunity for a number of reasons. God could call you home when you leave here and you move on. You're not guaranteed to be able to take that call tomorrow. You might be saying, well, God is always available. I can always come to God and he'll be ready to listen. That is true. He is always available. But you are not always available. He's not the one that gets in the way of you making a decision for him. He's done everything that he can do. He's left it up to you. Whether this is accepting Christ for the first time or taking a next step with him. If you want a graphic example, read Romans 1. The people that are talked about in Romans 1, the end of that chapter, consciously put God out of their minds. They wanted nothing to do with him. They pushed him away. What was the end of that? It says God gave them up to a debased mind. God said, you don't want what I'm offering you? Okay, you've made your decision. And he gave them over to a debased mind. Don't let that happen to you. If you have that inkling, that nudge from the Holy Spirit this morning, don't let that go away. Don't leave without doing something about it, okay? If you haven't entered into that rest of a life with Christ, this morning is a perfect morning. Today is a perfect day if you hear his voice. Please don't push that away because you don't know if you will be receptive tomorrow. Let's wrap up our study in a word of prayer.